0: Welcome back to GI Pearls, the Gastroenterology and Hepatology Literature Review Podcast. I have some great news. We just crossed a threshold of over a thousand listeners. Very exciting. So if you like what you hear, please spread the word, tell others about the podcast, and leave a review on iTunes. That's how some people are discovering these days, and it'll be very helpful for them to see what others are thinking. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at info at gipearls.com or reach me on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. I have two patients who happen to have eosinophilic esophagitis and end up with ulcerative colitis on top of that. Turns out that this is not as rare as I thought it was. Berkeley Limitkai, a very prolific author from California, published a prospective population-based analysis of such cases in Gut Journal. Turns out that the risk of eosinophilic esophagitis is higher among patients with Crohn's disease, prevalence ratio of 7.8, and ulcerative colitis with prevalence ratio of 5.0. And conversely, risk of IBD is higher amongst patients with EOE, with prevalence ratio of 7.6 for Crohn's and 4.9 for UC. An interesting tidbit from the paper, at least according to the numbers here, it looks like the patients with EOE may require more steroids for their IBD, but there was no increase in need for anti-TNF drugs in patients compared to those with IBD alone. So there may be an overlap between these two diseases, who knows. I don't think at this point there's a need to screen for one or the other in the absence of symptoms though. Fecal microbiota transplant FMT is still pretty cumbersome and most places it is done via colonoscopy so it really sucks when a patient needs antibiotics after successful cure of their C. diff with FMT some have resorted to adding antibiotic prophylaxis which I guess is vancomycin if patient does require antibiotics. This next study out of the Brigham with Jess Allegretti being the first author on it, and she is the guru of all things C. diff. It is a retrospective study of over 100 patients at three FMT referral centers who got systemic antibiotics after their C. diff was cured with FMT. 8% of these patients had a recurrence of C. diff after this exposure to new antibiotics, and it turns out that giving anti-C. diff antibiotics at the same time, like vancomycin, orthodoxymycin, etc, didn't help at all. Not super surprising and somewhat upsetting. Okay, this next paper is very relevant. It's from MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas. How often are you asked to evaluate a cancer patient with low platelets or even worse, neutropenia? Say there's a thickened colon on CT, maybe diarrhea, maybe a GI bleed, and you're a bit hesitant because the platelets are just too low or maybe they're neutropenic. So I guess what I'm saying is that how often do we say, oh, no, this is too dangerous to do because the patient is too neutropenic or they only have three platelets. I don't think we're going to fix the bleed, even if we can. How much truth is in those statements? Are there thresholds of platelets that we should be aware of? Are we too cautious? So if your patient's platelets are, let's say, 20, what are the chances of them bleeding? If your patient's ANC is 500, what's the chance of your colonoscopy giving them an infection? So this study is, of course, a single-center retrospective study, but in a sense, every hospital potentially has the ability to extract such data, and one can envision a patient asking these questions, like, well, if my platelets are low, how likely am I to bleed? And the doc can say, well, in the past four years, we had 40 patients like you with platelets as low as yours, and only X number of patients have bled. Wouldn't that be cool? But going back to the article, so again, a single-center retrospective study coming out of MDM Anderson, Texas, neutropenia, defined here as ANC less than 1,000, they looked at 500 patients who had over 700 procedures, factors associated with development of bleeding were poor performance status, and if thrombocytopenia coexisted with severe neutropenia. Other factors, such as anticoagulant use, high-risk procedures, or endoscopic findings didn't matter much. How about infections? This is the real worry with neutropenia. Again, poor performance status was on top of their list. Things that were not associated with increased risk of infection were, surprisingly, immunosuppressant use, procedures that are deemed to be a high risk of infection, and fever before endoscopy. None of these mattered. So the patients in this study who were really at risk of bleeding if the platelets were low were cancer patients. At the end of the day, if platelets are over 50 and ANC is above 1,000 or close to it, There should be a lot less hesitation than I guess is out there to do these endoscopic procedures. And I think most endoscopists feel very comfortable doing endoscopy on patients with ANC of a thousand or more and platelets over 50. It's right below this is where the gray zone exists and a lot of people don't want to do it. So once again, the caveat here is that many patients in the study were cancer patients and a lot of patients received antibiotics if their ANC was deemed to be low enough prior to endoscopy. And within this study, 70% of patients or so got antibiotics. So that's another potential way of getting around this low ANC slash neutropenia endoscopy rule that some centers have is to give pre-procedure antibiotics, but I'm not going to comment on which ones and for how long. And this statement comes directly from the discussion of the paper for an appropriate indication and with a fair functional status, endoscopic procedures are fairly safe in patients with neutropenia regardless of their ANC. So that's another thing to keep in mind, especially for cancer patients. Doing both an upper and lower endoscopy on the same patient is routine for various things. Say they have dysphagia and you found a ring on barium swallow, and they also need a screen colonoscopy or something like that. Oh yeah, and by the way, you almost always start with an upper. I'm not sure how many people out there do a colonoscopy first prior to an upper endoscopy. I don't think it happens too often. Most recently, there was a change in how hospitals and doctors get paid in the United States, which led to a very peculiar behavior on the part of some docs and some endoscopy centers, where they split the procedures and do an upper endoscopy on one day and colonoscopy on a different day. Why? I think the answer to that is obvious to everyone. It's because their ambulatory surgical centers or their hospitals get paid less if the procedures are bundled. Not only is this a waste of medical resources, it is a waste of patients' time and money even though the hospitals and endoscopy centers end up doing better. The next study coming out of JAMA shows to some degree the scope of the problem. They looked at over 4 million procedures, about half being done at the ambulatory endoscopy center and the rest at the hospital. Conclusion was that different day procedure rates were significantly higher in physician offices, 47%, and freestanding ambulatory surgical centers, 22%, compared to hospital outpatient departments, 13.6%. I think the best way to reduce low-value care like this is to align incentives the right way. This paper demonstrates clearly that these incentives are currently misaligned. The conclusion paragraph is also interesting here, since the authors basically say that their research may shame other doctors into doing the right thing. I wonder if that worked in the past. Oh, and they say that it does. Here's a quote. Recent studies have shown that such pure comparison using data transparency can affect physician behavior and reduce clinical waste. I guess shaming works. I don't think there'd be a big rush to do the endoscopies on the same day, now that this data is out. We'll see. There's a bunch of new devices out there that you're supposed to attach to the end of your scope to help you look for polyps behind folds. The data for these is neither here nor there, but some people swear by these. The cost is somewhere between 10 bucks to 50 bucks a piece, So if you're doing a lot of colonoscopies, this adds up quickly. Next paper, compared a cap-assisted colonoscopy to a cuff-assisted colonoscopy. Cuff being the endocuff, a little spider-looking thing you attach to the end of your scope to open up folds for you. And cap-assisted is literally a little piece of transparent plastic cap that you attach to the end of your scope with a little hole in it. This paper looked at over 700 patients and randomized them to endocuff versus cap-assisted colonoscopy. And then compared adenoma detection rates. ADR was the same for both groups, about 50%. No difference in mean number of adenomas, polyps per procedure, sequel intubation rates, or time to sequel intubation. What's interesting to me is that CAP assisted colonoscopy has been around a lot longer than the new endocuff, and I don't think that CAP helps increase ADR for most endoscopists, and literature on this is kind of all over the place. One more thing to keep in mind, and I think that Bjorn Rembacken from the UK has brought this up before, the disadvantage of attaching any device to the end of your scope is that it adds drag to the scope, so forward motion may be more challenging. Another interesting fact about this paper is that all patients had a positive fit test, which is probably why their ADR is so high at 50%. Also no increased adverse events were noted if you attach these things to the scope. So I think you should feel free to use them if you need to bump up your ADR. But I'm not sure how well it will work. And also remember, they're not free. At the end of the day, if your ADR is low, I think the best thing to do is to find out why that is. See what kind of things you're doing, your withdrawal time, even your gesticulant intubation time. And then try to identify some factors. And at the end of the day, just doing a few minor changes sometimes helps. There are many reasons to love research coming out of Ben Leibold's lab out of New York City. For one thing, their papers on celiac disease are helpful, relevant, and often have something new to teach us about celiac disease. This next one from the Red Journal May issue, they looked at marketing claims made by American chiropractors, naturopaths, homeopaths, and acupuncturists as such claims relate to diagnosis of celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity. What they found is not that shocking. A third of these practices made some sort of a claim regarding celiac disease, and of course, many of these claims were false or unproven. They even have some examples, including a homeopathic remedy for celiac disease, and all sorts of saliva tests for food sensitivities. What a bunch of nonsense. I see patients every week who have seen one of these practitioners, and often, thankfully not always, it is hard to convince patients to change their minds about very bogus advice or to stop them taking 14 pills a day of all sorts of supplements that the previous person they saw recommended to stave off celiac disease. Another Ben Ball paper, this one is published in CGH May issue. So when you have a patient with celiac disease, I hope that you have endoscopic confirmation for their diagnosis before you go ahead and start on a gluten-free diet. Guidelines tell us as much. How good are we at following these guidelines? Because keep in mind that TTG IgA has a sensitivity and specificity in the high 90s, but it's not 100%. So, confirming the diagnosis becomes more important, especially if you put somebody on a terrible, terrible, terrible gluten-free diet. So, this paper, they looked at patients' reported outcomes database of about 700 patients who had a biopsy and about 200 patients who only had serology. Then they looked at what factors could be responsible for people not getting biopsies. And it turns out about 30% of these patients never saw a GI doc at all, and that's not great because less patients looked for nutritional advice regarding gluten-free diet, and more patients who never had endoscopy or biopsy started taking all sorts of supplements to aid digestion or help with their celiac disease symptoms, sort of like the previous paper suggested. Overall, 21% or a fifth of celiac patients in this one database never had a biopsy-proven diagnosis at all. That is a lot of people. Even worse, that a third of these patients who were diagnosed on serology actually saw a GI doc at some point, but never got the biopsy. If anything else doesn't persuade you to get the biopsy, think about this. Gluten-free diet is expensive. So don't waste your patients' money if they don't have to, and get the damn biopsy. Every time I bring up the fact that it is almost impossible to find an actively bleeding diverticulum, it is a zebra, I end up finding one. I even found one the other day. It feels good to stop those bleeds, because they tend to be massive and real scary too, blood everywhere. Good news is that most patients just stop bleeding on their own, of course. Recurrence is an issue though. Neil Singupta and his group from University of Chicago decided to look if doing early endoscopy for terraticular bleeding helps prevent recurrent bleeding. Short answer, it does not. They retrospectively looked at 20,000 diverticular bleeds, half of the patients undergoing early colonoscopy defined at somewhere in the first 24 hours of admission, which is what ASGE is recommending, by the way, at least for hematocasia, giving this particular point 3 out of 4 pluses in terms of strength of evidence. After doing some fancy statistics, it turned out that patients who had an early colonoscopy ended up with additional colonoscopy, almost 73% of the time, compared with patients who did not get a colonoscopy within 24 hours at 4%. Now, that's a huge and very clinically significant difference, of course. Proportion of patients receiving some sort of intervention was also lower for patients with early endoscopy, 3% versus 8% for late endoscopy. Keep in mind that a different study showed that you may have intervened more often when you do an early colonoscopy but you did not end up giving patients more blood or improved mortality. How do the authors explain lack of intervention and this whole data in terms of need for repeat colonoscopy? I quote, this may be a representative of a real-world management of diverticular bleeding. Couldn't agree more, by the way. Meaning that most people don't find the source of bleeding when doing colonoscopy, while patients are actively bleeding. Of course, the counter-argument is that if they're actively bleeding, that's the time to find the bleed and fix it. Sure. But once again, it doesn't happen very often. Another thing that the authors mention, which supports this is that it is possible that bowel prep is poor, leading to abandonment of the procedure and asking for more prep. And this leads to repeat colonoscopy. Once again, it's 73% of the time if you do it early, which is a lot, versus 4% if you do it after 24 hours. 30-day rebleeding rate was also higher in this paper, and this potentially may be explained by the fact that the patients who were scoped early could be sicker or and more meds, like blood thinners, maybe they had renal insufficiency, etc., which is why you were pushed to do it early. The biggest argument for early colonoscopy was the reduction in hospital stay, and that's not a bad argument. So the authors say here, well, that's great if you send a patient out early, but this leads to them being admitted again within 30 days, so you really just moved the deck chairs around and didn't accomplish anything. So a lot to think about in this really good paper. In the past, I reviewed a few papers suggesting that there was an increase in the rate of hepatocellular carcinoma recurrence in cirrhotics recently cured of their hep C, using direct acting antivirals. I guess such reports created enough hysteria that the AGA had to react and they released a clinical practice update. Here are some of the highlights. One, don't be afraid. DAA treatment of hepatitis C reduces risk of HCC overall. Two, don't forget about surveillance advanced liver fibrosis, F3, or cirrhosis. These patients are at highest risk of HCC, so don't forget about surveillance. And three, keep the HCC surveillance program on. Four, the best mode of surveillance is ultrasound every six months, plus or minus AFP. Five, so far as we know, there is no reduction of risk of HCC after treatment of hep C in cirrhotics. The next six or seven best practices are kind of boring, stating that if HCC happens and it is resectable, get it out. But an interesting one is that if your patient with cirrhosis happens to have HCC and you're thinking about treating them for hepatitis C, think about how long it will take for them to get a transplant before you begin treatment. So there you have it. Best practices when it comes to curing hepatitis C in cirrhotics, plus or minus HCC. Nausea in the absence of possible etiology is hard to treat, and most of the time we just kind of throw all sorts of antiemetics and see what sticks. So what makes it hard is that we don't know how well different meds work compared to each other. There are some suggestions out there which ones work better, which ones don't work so much. This next study is coming out of Emergency Medicine Journal, and it is a randomized placebo-controlled trial of droperidol versus undansintron for nausea in ED patients. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but neither droperidol nor ondansetron worked. There was no improvement in symptoms of nausea for either medication in over 200 patients in this study, and they looked about 30 minutes after administering the drug. So very disappointing. Keep in mind that older studies and even Cochrane Review showed that between metaclopramide, prochlorperazine, promethazine, ondansetron, and droperidol all are about the same in terms of efficacy. Well, at least in ED setting, looks like giving anti-emetics for nausea relief is just as good as hanging a bag of saline. It was a very sad day for me as a fellow when I was trying to do an urgent endoscopy in the ICU, when I suddenly dislocated my thumb. I was trying to open a keyboard drawer on a travel cart. Needless to say, my attending had to take over, and I couldn't scope for about three to four days. Not fun, especially for a fellow where every day of endoscopy matters. Turns out I'm not alone when it comes to injuring myself on the job. Vikram Kotwal's group from Cook County Hospital in Chicago published the results of their survey of GI fellows, and it's interesting what kind of injuries people are getting. Out of 74 fellows who answered the survey, 85% of injuries happened during the first year of fellowship. 54% of people reported hand injuries to the right wrist, 42% were to the left thumb, and these injuries were trailed by back and neck surgeries and all sorts of other things like knuckle injury, etc. So not that many fellows get training on how to do endoscopy, the ergonomics of it. What is sad is that I think that the reason that so few fellows receive any kind of ergonomics training is that many of the teaching attendings themselves never got the training on how to stand, hold a scope. I've heard of many endoscopists getting all sorts of injuries from scoping. There was a bit of a Twitter thread going on on the fact that good endoscopists are like well-trained athletes. It's important to maintain high skills and use everything you can to try to avoid injury. Go look at it if you're interested in some hints of what people are doing to avoid injury while doing endoscopy. And there's a couple of good reviews published in the past on how to stand where the monitor should be. Any paper that starts off with a phrase, this or that has been used for more than 2,000 years to treat something. Any paper that starts with that phrase loses all credibility in my eyes. Logical fallacies aside, let's not be too critical and look at this next paper coming out of Hong Kong. This was a double-blind, double-dummy trial of Mazarin 1, which is an herbal remedy for constipation from China. So they compared this ancient herb to senna versus placebo and looked at almost 300 patients with functional constipation. Well, the bottom line here is that the herbal supplement didn't do much better than senna. And at least the Mazarin 1, was well tolerated, and their dose is 15 grams a day, which is basically taking a bunch of horse pills for functional constipation compared to a tiny Senna, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Gastric outlet obstruction due to cancer, obstructing the stomach or the duodenum, mostly from invading pancreatic cancer. It is a common enough thing that we have invented several ways of dealing with it. One is the surgical gastrogenostomy, basically bypassing the obstruction, there is an endoscopic way of doing it too, which is you put a self-expanding metal stent right through the obstruction, and that, And both ways have been around for a little while now. In the past, there was a lot of confusing studies, and in the end, healthier patients got surgery, and sicker ones ended up with a stent, and that's that. So clearly, the selection bias is a problem here, since based on that approach, stent patients will always do worse. So what really is better then? CGH published a retrospective analysis coming out of Cleveland of gastric outlet obstruction cases comparing outcomes of 180 stents versus 127 gastrogegenostomies. Clinical success was defined as basically a person is able to eat. The title of the article basically gives you the answer. Gastrogegenostomy is viewed to be better, but I suspect that this study also has selection bias playing a role in this outcome. The editorial picked it up and also mentions the fact that surgeons get the right of first refusal when it comes to surgery, since GI service is not even called on those patients who get the surgery, since no one is even thinking about putting a stent in these patients. So the new option that's not even mentioned in the article is, of course, the endoscopic gastroenterostomy, using EOS to place one of those new fancy stents. So I guess we still don't have the answer, despite somewhat enthusiastic and definitive title of this article. I think at the end of the day, we still kind of use Gestalt, and sick patients get stents, and not so sick patients get gastrogenostomy. And that ain't so bad. That is all I got for you for now. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the Gastroenterology and Hepatology Literature Review podcast. By the time I was done recording this, we actually reached over 2,000 listeners, which is very exciting. So keep on spreading the word on iTunes or otherwise. I did run across a few millennial GI docs recently who did not know what a podcast is. So reviews on iTunes in one thing, but word of mouth always helps. Thanks again. Bye-bye.